Brad, and welcome to a special summertime episode of Psychology and Stuff. I'm Ryan Martin, chair of the psychology department here at UW-Green Bay and host of Psychology and Stuff. And today, we're going to talk about a very big story in psychology right now. And we're going to do it with my friend and colleague. But first... I want to remind you all that you can get involved in the Psychology and Stuff conversation by going to Facebook or Twitter and searching for Psychology and Stuff. There's great stuff there about the show, but also psychology more generally. Plus, we take requests, so if you want to hear about a topic, that's a good way to let us know. I also want to say that we are now available via Stitcher, along with other great Phoenix Studios podcasts, so if you use the Stitcher app, you can find us there. Thank you, Stitcher. And that brings us to our guest for today. He's a good friend of the show, having made many appearances in the past few years. He's a health psychologist here at UW-Green Bay. He's an award-winning teacher and scholar, and he's an all-around good guy. Dr. Regan A.R. Garung, how are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. good. Yeah. This yeah. is this is great time to talk about this stuff. Yeah. Let's do it, because some big news has broken recently. Um, and so, uh, in, in fact, I think news that a lot of, my, my sense is a lot of uh, intro psychology teachers have been talking about nationally. And I know you've been doing some some talks over the summer and, and working with a lot of uh, intro teachers. And um, one of the things we've been talking about is the infamous uh, Stanford prison study, the Zim- famous Zimbardo study. Um, talk me through the news. What are people saying? Right. So I think the bottom line is this. The if you would ask a psychologist what do we learn from the Stanford Prison Study, it's the, the answer would be something on the lines of the power of the situation. Take normal average people and by the flip of a coin, uh, put them into one of two roles and lo and behold, their behavior will change according to the roles that they're placed in, right? So the Stanford Prison Study, flip of a coin, prison guards versus prisoner, and yikers, Here's these prison guards guards being so mean and the prisoners being so subservient and so on and so forth. So big news, right? Uh, 1971, actually day one was August 15th, 1971. So it's coming up real close. And the reason I know that is uh, I'll keep for just a little bit further in the podcast. Um, Nice teaser. I like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but no, so, so there's this deal. I mean, it's in social psych textbooks. It is in every chapter of social psychology in, in the intro psych book. And uh, what we've what what happened this summer is a number a number of different things. I think most importantly, there was a, a Vox article that was probably the single best uh, place that said, "Hey, look, based on a whole bunch of interviews with participants, uh, we now know that things may not have been exactly as they were portrayed." And, and, and we'll think, post that article in the in the show notes with super, us. So. Yeah, and I think you know. The let let's just maybe highlight some of the yes, big things do. that yep. go. Oh, what I think the single biggest thing is. Let's go back to what I said. The main point was right. The main point was look. The situation makes people behave in ways they wouldn't have otherwise. Well, one of the big things that came out in this in this interview was that beyond just the flip of the coin for prisoner versus guard. Uh, Dr. Zimbardo and his assistants actually coached the guards onto how to be guards. Mm-hmm. Well, if I just left it there, and I'm not, I'll, I'll come, I'll add a few more details in a bit. But if you just leave it there, you go, well, what's stud- the study then? You know, right. what do you mean they, they were like that because of the situation? He coached them how to be guards. End of story. So that's a, that's a big reason that that right. was a problem. Uh, I think there were other little things that made this uh, a sexy story, as it were. For example, uh, 
one of the one of his assistants apparently was an undergraduate in his class who actually proposed the rudiments of the Stanford Prison Study, mm-hmm. and I know I didn't know that until the article, and thought, right. oh, that's sort of cool, and and you know this is that's something that Zimbardo well, acknowledges. I want to say that yeah. so we talked about this, you know, we've talked about this study a couple times. So listeners, if you're not really familiar, hunt go back to that to some previous right episodes. We watched the movie, the, yep. and um, then yep. we we interviewed also later than that Derek Jeffries, mm-hmm. who is a, a religious studies professor on yep, campus yep. Uh, to talk about. It. He actually sent me some stuff in preparation for this episode as well. So thank you, Derek. Um, but one of the things I remember from that discussion is actually Zimbardo isn't the first author on this study. No. In fact, I think he might be third yep. that there are two, I think, students who who worked on this. Right. So and and that's so there's the second point, right? If mm-hmm. you take a look at it and if you, if we all say, hey, where do we get our knowledge from? It's it's peer-reviewed publications. And if you actually take a look at the very first place the Stanford right. Prison Studies mentioned, it's in the report of the Naval Academy. Right. Right. So th- that that's something else that came up. So so let's hit a few of let's uh, enumerate a few of the reasons people are so <laughs> up in arms. Right. So number one, the guards were actually coached. Right. Mm-hmm. Is the claim? Uh, is the alleged claim? Number two, hey, why didn't you publish it in a mainstream peer-reviewed journal first? Number three is um, the notion that. Uh, perhaps the prisoner who had a breakdown, you know, faked it, right? Uh, and and so on and so forth. But I think those are the right. three big ones that I keep seeing over and over again. And uh, and I think that that's one of the big reasons now that the field is abuzz right. going, oh, what actually happened in the Sanford Prison Center? Well, let's, let's talk about both of the points two and point three quick. So I'm going to actually start with point three, um, the, the prisoner who had the breakdown. Um, this is a pretty famous, my hunch is that if you study psychology at all, you've heard this, uh, this breakdown because there's audio of him essentially screaming. I'm breaking up inside. I'm yeah. breaking up inside. Very good. Yes. End quote. So, yeah. Yep. That's exactly yeah. right. So you may think that we just played a recording, but no, that was Regan Garong doing his impression. Um, but yeah, his whole I'm burning up inside, I'm breaking up inside. I, I'm all, I think, effed up, he says. That's um, right. I was just going to yeah. say, you don't need to bleep off anything. I left <laughs> right. that, that part out. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that this is a, a very famous breakdown that I think is one of the reasons why this study is so famous. And he is now saying essentially that he was acting and that he thought he was supposed to, or, or no, he was saying he wanted to get out of the right. study, right? Right. Um, and that he thought this was his way of doing it. He allegedly was studying for the GRE, which uh, mm-hmm. psychology majors planning on going to graduate school or all, lots of students planning on going to graduate school can uh, yep. commiserate with. He's now a forensic psychologist. Um, and he uh, you know, essentially said, I, I was acting. Um, so that's a pretty big hit. I want to go to the second point, though, because I think this is really interesting. And that is, so it's not in a peer-reviewed study uh, journal. Why isn't it? What, what do you think is the, the reason why they wouldn't go that route and submit well, that? you know, I, I think the good news is whenever there's, uh, there's always, uh, before I give you an opinion, <laughs> I think I always try and look out, is there a fact before we even have to write? To, and Zimbardo himself, uh, in response to the three things we mentioned, mm. I just mentioned, you know, okay. came up with some responses. So let me go with his response. Okay, perfect. Uh, and we'll see whether we need to go beyond that. And he quite simply says, look, that's where I got a lot of funding from. That's where I, where my, the way I put my report first. Okay. Now, you know... <laughs> You can say, well, is that always what happens? And I, mm-hmm. and I say, well, it doesn't have to be that case. Now, mind mm-hmm. you, this was we're getting close to it, it being 50 years ago. Uh, oh. But I think I don't know if, if personally 
if I got all of uh, many of us get funding to do research, and I know that whenever I do uh, teaching and learning research, I always make sure that I am free to publish my findings. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hesitate, if not uh, decline doing work, taking money if I am told that I cannot publish the findings. Right. right? And mind you, some publishers have said to me, nope, you know, uh, we, we'll give you a grant, but we have to see the findings first. And it, it's one thing to say, see the findings, sure, if you want, but don't keep them back. Right. So I can buy that story, you know, mm-hmm. that he that's where the funding came from, so it was in their report. I'm not mm-hmm. sure, and I don't know the dynamics, and he doesn't go into details about did he submit it simultaneously, or, right. because nothing would preclude that, you know. And I would argue, I mean, so one of the reasons I asked the question is because I have, uh, and I've made this argument before on this podcast, that I actually don't think this is that good a study, right? I, I think it's famous because it was controversial, and by controversial, I mean unethical. Um, and so I don't, I think the actual details, the story as told, right? So not even with this new information, I think we've got soft dependent variables, um, that that is probably my biggest criticism, is that we don't have a real clear dependent mm-hmm. variable, um, and that that. So I, I've often wondered, would this be published, uh, publishable? Would he have been able to find a peer-reviewed outlet for it at the time? Now, I'm certain he would tell me, yes, he could have. But we know that uh, other scholars were skeptical of this work at the time. I mean, that, that some of, the, some of the, the skepticism has been around for those right. 50 oh, years. Absolutely. absolutely. So. Well, I think what, you know, there's, there's the notion of, of is, how, is science more robust today than it was 50 right. years ago? And I think the answer is an absolute yes. Mm-hmm. You know, there are, there are more people doing it. There are more journals. There's the, the bars to get in our different. I want mm-hmm. to go to something else, though, that we, that we uh, you know, that we mentioned. Quite honestly, the whole did, did the prisoner fake it or not, mm-hmm. it's not that, that's not something that I get hung up on too much because uh, I think apparently the prisoner changed his story over the years. Right. You know, there's just lots of things there. What drew my attention, though, is, and this is whenever I talk to either students about it or actually I was even talking to my kids about the study. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the basic question is, but in a research study, you're, if you want to get out, you're you're supposed to be allowed to. Right. Right. Yep. And this is where in the Vox article, there was something really interesting that basically said uh, the Stanford Prison Study team in their IRB had a certain phrase the prisoners had to say to get out. So unless they said that phrase, they couldn't get out. Yep, they had to say, I quit the experiment. There you go, right? Um, yep, and only that precise phrase would trigger their release. And so, you know, this also makes you think about this, the, uh, the, the Milgram Obedience Study. The, re- the experiment requires mm-hmm. you to continue, right? What, so there's this magic phrase that now, of course, supposedly it's in the consent form, and I've, you know, looked, and people who've looked at the consent form said it's not very clear if at all <laughs> it's in there, and I haven't gone back and looked at that yet, right? right? But I think that's why this whole... I can see them wanting to get out and try whatever you can to get out. Uh, and I think that's going directly to what you said about the ethics of it is can we expect participants to hit on the right magic combination right. of words to get out? Yep. And this is so this is another article I'll post along with this, this uh, medium arg- article titled, uh, well, I'll give you the title in a second here, The Lifespan of a Lie. Mm-hmm. And in it, um, First of all, Zimbardo uh, very clearly says that the the claims 
of the participants, he says it's a lie. Uh, in fact, he said it twice. It's a lie. The faking. Um, yes, yeah. he said they were not faking, um, or said they're lying to claim they were faking. Um, said uh, the interesting thing is they say the informed consent forms that Zimbardo's subjects signed, which are available online from his own website, contain no mention of the phrase "I quit the experiment." And so, from a, I mean, this is a, a study that people have long criticized on ethical lines, um, and it appears to to there may be another complaint, essentially, right, if that phrase isn't in the, the consent form. So let's, I want to broaden this out, because this is, so this is one of, I would argue, and I'd be curious to see your thoughts, Regan, this is one of the three most famous studies, or I think arguably one of the three most famous studies in the history of psychology. Is that a fair Absolutely. argument? I mean, and it's not just mine. I mean, I've looked over lists when I teach research mm-hmm. methods. I Every year I look at what are the lists of the mm-hmm. top 10, you know, most right. famous or the, and the most unethical, and this appears on both. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> yep. so um, okay, to see if we have the same three, what would your three? Well, I, I think the, the Milgram study, right. uh, this well. one. And, you know, the other ones... In terms of famous, I mm-hmm. think in terms of famous, I think the Ash Conformity study. Yep. And I mean, I, mean, I know I bet you we shared this one, uh, uh, the Bandura Bobadol yep. study. Right? And, I mean, there's a huge. Now, yeah. And that would have been my third right. as well. So, and not just because we once got to have dinner without Bandura. Right, that's right. That, that, was, that um, was something. And right. <laughs> was this dog pepper? I don't remember yeah, his I think dog's it was pepper. Name. I mean, the dog wasn't there, just to no, clarify. Just, just to be clear. But <laughs> we were at a restaurant in Chicago. He told us some good stories about how yes. he was trying to work with his dog, Pepper, to yep. do things. So oh. He, it was Pepper. It was a fascinating, and fascinating. And Al, if you're listening, yeah. uh, I'm sorry if I'm misremembering Pepper's <laughs> name. <Yeah>. Wow. <laughs> um, but so we have this issue where in some of the other very famous studies in psychology um, have been under a lot of scrutiny recently. In fact, there was an article on, what did we say, Monday? The, yes. Um, uh, so a week July ago. 16th? Yeah, a week ago um, in uh, New York, New York Times. Times. Yeah. yeah, Psychology Itself is Under Scrutiny. We'll p- post this as well. It's by uh, Benedict Carey. That really points to a lot of problems um, within the field of psychology and specifically the research in psychology. It's what we've been referring to for quite a few years now is the replication crisis. Yeah. Can you describe the replication crisis? Yeah, quick, quick tangent. Uh, mm-hmm. Many of our Please. listeners may uh, recognize that name Benedict Carey as being the author of the trade book, How We Learn, mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the best uh, summaries of cognitive psychology of learning and things like that. So same guy. So okay. the moment I saw Benedict Carey writing that, I'm like, oh, okay, let's, let's be a little more attention yeah, to this. That is very cool. So uh, that's it. I've totally forgotten your question. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it was to uh, <laughs> describe the the replication yes. crisis. Okay. Yes. What's, right, what's right, going on? Right. So uh, I think the, the there are a couple of uh, watershed events that there are two watershed events that that made the field of psychology realize that there is a replication crisis. I think. Um, one is the Open Science Foundation Network uh, and Brian Novak. Uh, Brian uh, published this article that took a hundred studies in psychology and found that only 40, 40 of them, oh, 40% of the studies tested actually replicated. Right, so that's sixty percent, just not, uh, not not replicating whatsoever. I think that's that was a big a big that was a big deal. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you look at the authorship, there's there are so many authors. It's just called the Open Science Foundation Consortium because there are I think over a hundred authors on that paper because so many people did all these replications. 
I think that's what really drew attention to it. And mm-hmm. for those, uh, and I will probably use the phrase open science, um, OSF, a number of times, and open science, because that's really key. But I think the really the big one was uh, Amy Cuddy's power posing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what really did it. And the Amy Cuddy's uh, power posing studies basically said that depending on the pose, uh, you can change both how you feel and your physiology. So mm-hmm. she had, uh, in, a, in an experiment, she had people sit either sit up or have some straight poses or hunched with their legs up on the table and, and things like that. And what she found in this study was that not only did the people who sat in a power pose or an upright pose, not only did they feel more confident, but, and here's the biggie, their physiology changed. There was mm. you know, more testosterone released and things like that. So their body chemistry was related to the testosterone. Now, here's why this became such a big deal, because Amy Cuddy's uh, findings were huge, right? Uh, she did a TED she Talk. She did a TED Talk, which I believe is one of the top three TED Talks ever watched. It's over a million plus people. Uh, she got consulting gigs with companies, went in for big honorariums to do stuff, uh, all the while trying to replicate this finding and unfortunately, the finding didn't replicate. Mm-hmm. Now, here's where modern technology gets interesting. A bunch of relatively junior faculty, and I think, and, and some grad students started doing some look, taking a look at the statistics, and they, they found that depending, and, and the, the, the phrase often used is p hacking, where you look at the p values, and they created these p hacking, you know, p curves and, and just funky stuff, where they found that not only was the effect not as strong, as was talked about, uh, but then the finding didn't replicate. Mm-hmm. So over the last five years, it's really interesting, and this summer actually was a, is a key event. Uh, firstly, journals had sections on trying to replicate the power posing study. Uh, one of the co-authors on the, uh, Cuddy's co-author basically backed off from the original finding. I think the, the dark side is that many in the field of psychology started saying very negative things about her. I heard Amy Cuddy speak at MPA a couple of years ago. She said she received death threats. She didn't want to leave her house. Uh, Not the way you should treat a scientist Mm -hmm. by far. Um, Most importantly for our story is that this summer, she published uh, a meta-analysis. And wait for it. She found that indeed the feelings component of power posing was replicated. So if you sit up straight and if you hold right. a strong pose, you do feel better. Okay. But even in her meta-analysis, she could not replicate the biological chemistry, okay. neurochemistry finding. So that's consistent for the last six years, that, that, mm-hmm. that biochemistry from the original study could, could, is not replicating. Right. Right? I mean, and I think those two things, that big study that right. said, hey, 60% don't replicate, and Amy Cuddy was then followed by some classic studies that mm-hmm. apparently I mean, not, are not replicating so, as well. So I want to clarify, too, kind of what the, what the reason for this is, or at least the, what the accusations are, because I don't think too many, there are probably some, I don't think too many people are accusing Cuddy or others of lying. Uh, intentionally, though there may be some. Right. I mean, right. it's certainly once you start uh, filing death threats, right? You, right. Uh, there's probably more to it there. Um, but I think a lot of what we're talking about is is a, a flaw in the method or a flaw in the in, in the process. Is that a fair? Right, and I, and I think Brian Nosek uh, okay. is. That's basically what he's saying. He's, mm-hmm. he's saying, look, we got to look at our statistics better. Right. Uh, I think, especially the term p hacking is basically. I mean, one way to talk about it is 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 
not doing using the stats to Mm -hmm. you know to get the answer that you want right and i think here are some key terms to throw out there i mean there's falsification and there's fabrication Mm -hmm. i don't think anybody's saying that amy cuddy fabricated her results uh actually i don't even think people are saying people are falsifying she falsified her results they're just saying depending on how you look at uh your statistics things may look a little bit different. And that's why, uh, you know, I like to think about the term, the new statistics, even though these statistics are not new, but a big deal is instead of just the null hypothesis testing and looking at the p-value, you actually go and look at confidence intervals, Mm -hmm. you look at effect sizes. Right. You know, uh, Jeff Cummings wrote a great book in 2012 that really pushed for what he called the new statistics, even though these things are not new. Right. But I think that's going to make a difference. Right. Well, and not to get too into the, the world of statistics on this, but by definition, one in 20 significant articles right. is right. going to right. be find a false right. positive, right? Right, right. And, and I think here's why when you talk about the replication crisis and why mm-hmm. it's a crisis, one of the big things that came up is part of the problem is the, the so-called publication bias. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get published if you right. have did no findings, right. right? So how do you know right. that something's not? Yep. Yeah. You do the same study 20 times, yeah. one of those is going to find something, and then that's going to be the one that gets yeah. published, yeah. essentially. And, 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 and you know, here's where I can segue to my T-shirt, mm-hmm. right? So uh, <laughs> for listeners out there, I, I chose my attire for today, and uh, it's basically the outline of a Bigfoot, and it has the big phrase, don't stop believing. And I think <laughs> this really struck me as something that's going on with science. You know, mm-hmm. the power posing, right, was evidence for the effect of power poses, but that it was then found to be not completely what it was, mm-hmm. just like evidence for Bigfoot. But yet, right. people want to keep believing, right? Mm-hmm. Even though you go, wait a minute, but we've just disproven that part of evidence, but right. you, you don't remember that. You know, and I think that's what's happening with a lot of our findings in right. in, uh, in psychology. And, and you know, if you want to, shall we mention a couple of the other big ones? Yes, yeah. please do. So um, some of the, I mean, when I think about uh, over the last year, the big, oh my gosh, you mean that didn't replicate kinds of uh, st- studies are the, st- uh, the STRAC um, emotion feedback. So, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, I mean, I love talking about this. Oh, I used to because I don't know if I can talk about it anymore. Mm -hmm. I used to love talking about how you put your pencil in your mouth and rate cartoons, and depending on whether it's, you know, how you put your pencil in your mouth, the cartoon's either funny or not. That study. Smiling or frowning. Yeah, smiling or frowning, right? Pushing your face muscles into a smile or a frown. Well, that failed to replicate. Mm -hmm. Um, That was was one of the the early ones. Uh, Even before that, something not as well-known, but here again as a social psychologist, well-known to me, ego depletion, Mm -hmm. right? The whole, this is the Baumeister work, where basically, uh, you know, if you're sort of low in energy, some of Baumeister's work showed that you give people a glucose drink or something that literally builds energy, and then, whoa, attention comes back and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and he did some really funky studies on eat the cookie now or, you know, eat a cookie and all that kind of stuff. Is ego depletion failed to replicate. Can I, I want to yeah. read a quote from uh, a researcher there. So if I'm going to mispronounce this, but I'm guessing you will know. It's uh, Michael Inslicht. Does that sound familiar? I can't do much better on that okay. pronunciation. Um, so um, he, he wrote, uh, this is an, uh, an article in The Atlantic on the replication crisis. Um, by, by the way, the author of that article is Ed Yong, who's given a bunch of great TED Talks. Um, but he wrote, to be clear, I'm in love with social psychology. I'm writing mm. here because I'm still in love with social psychology. 
Yet I am dismayed that so many of us are dismissing or justifying all those small and not so small signs that things are just not right and things are not what they seem. Carry on, folks. Nothing to see here is what some of us uh, seem to be saying. Our problems are not small and they will not be remedied by small fixes. Our problems are systemic and they are at the core of how we conduct our science. He goes on to talk about his work in ego, ego depletion, and he says, mm-hmm. as someone who has been doing research for nearly 20 years, I now can't help but wonder if the topics I chose to study are in fact real and robust. Have I been chasing puffs of smoke all of these years? I spent nearly a decade working on the concept of ego depletion, including work that is critical of the model used to explain the phenomenon. Um, he's been reported, uh, he goes on and on, and he says, the problem is that ego depletion might not even be a thing. There you go. Um, yeah. Which I think is, you know, to his really to his credit is someone who's speaking out and saying this thing that I've been doing might not be real. Yeah. And and I think that so much of the problem is scientists getting wrapped up in their work and not wanting to believe that the work they've been doing isn't isn't right. legit. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Lots of stuff out there. I mean, and I think it's making people ask the very valid question that I got at a recent talk. So, which of those studies in the intro psych textbook shouldn't be in there? You know, sixty <laughs> percent of them. <laughs> well, I, right, Brian Nosek, right? Right. And, and I think you know, getting back to where we sort of started, should the Stanford Prison mm-hmm. Study be in there? And I think the answer is absolutely. Although I may move it from the social chapter to the research methods chapter. Right. You know, mm-hmm. so absolutely it should be there. Right. Uh, yeah. Something else, and we, we touched on this, but this may be a good time since I mentioned Stanford again. Uh, I would I would urge individuals and listeners to go to the Stanford Prison Study webpage mm-hmm. because Phil Zimbardo not only has a point-by-point rebuttal mm-hmm. to all the points, and we don't have to agree with the rebuttal, but it's there. Okay. But to his credit, he has every criticism that we've talked about on this podcast. Mm-hmm. He has the links to every article that's a criticism. He's got a link to the his original papers. He's got a link to, it's just a great, it's the one-stop shop hmm. for this podcast. Just go to the Stanford Prison Study right. page. It's all there. And I will post that as well. Yeah, you can um, read all about it and uh, be prepared to, you know, mm-hmm. be surprised. I will take a look at that, and because that is one piece that I was missing as I was doing my research for this, I hadn't seen a whole lot written about his response. And, to and this. his is and, very, very recent. I think it's okay. just the last two or three weeks okay. that's been out, and you can read it and you go, "Hmm, okay, I sort of get by it, I mm-hmm. sort of don't." You know. So, so some of this is the flaw of the scientific method or the way we're doing the scientific method. Some of this is probably fair to acknowledge that we're talking about some old studies and that human beings have changed yeah. over over the last generation, right? And yeah. that, that that may also be relevant. Um, yeah, and and I think so. So in, in actually, that's a great nudge to say, well, is that happening now? And I mm-hmm. think honestly, well, we can, it's really easy to throw stuff at the Stanford prison study and the Milgram obedience study. But I think uh, nicely going from ego depletion, one whole area that all of us need to look at is any work on priming, mm-hmm. because that's the big place where replication issues are mm-hmm. tantamount. And, there are, it, and I think when you look at Priming, it gives us two key things. Firstly, they're much more recent, right? Mm-hmm. All the priming studies are recent. And uh, just to put it out there, the big priming study is actually one of the biggest controversies is Berg's study on, on priming. And this is the study where individuals either read words that uh, suggested older individuals mm-hmm. or younger, and after reading or being primed with these words, they either walked slower or faster, right? Classic priming mm-hmm. uh, study. And that, that study has, has, had, has failed 
able to replicate, hmm. right? I mean, so this is a huge deal. Out of your awareness, you read a world, a word that relates to being older, and then you actually change and you walk slower, right? So the bar work has has been is uh, is under fire, and I, when I look around, you notice that a lot of the priming stuff is is under fire. So, for mm-hmm. example. Uh, uh, scroll and wires work on uh, hostility priming it has not is not replicating and this really funky study uh, where they primed people to either think about professors or soccer hooligans right and after the priming they gave them a trivia task lo and behold if you were primed with professor you did better on the trivia task than if you were primed with soccer hooligan and the name is a very dutch name digextr i'm totally slaughtering it because i can't even begin to pronounce it pronounce it but uh, that in that study if I'm, 13% of the people primed with professor i mean people primed with professor did 13% better than people primed with um, soccer hooligan and this hmm. was study 4 out of 4 really really interesting stuff and and that's a study that's not replicating well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I should say that that study, the reason I like mentioning it is because to the author's credit, mm-hmm. when this replication crisis hit uh, psychology, when Brian Nozick, uh, Nozick pr- pr- published that paper, uh, APS, the Association for Psych Science, uh, started a replication project. And the authors of the Hooligan Professor study were the first to volunteer their study for replication tests. Hmm. And what's very cool is that uh, you had multiple labs using their protocol so that you could see whether you get findings or not. And what in clear uh, evidence of the issue, remember I said 13% in the original study, Mm -hmm. the replication just showing at best 3% differences. And in some cases, not significant. So, wow, that's an issue. Yep. Yeah. So it's that modern thing. And I think it's also we are getting, we are more statistically savvy now. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's, I think, another part of the problem. Sample sizes, effect sizes, we're paying more attention to that. And when you pay more attention to that, it's actually no surprise that the priming studies, many of which are small sample sizes, small effects, Mm -hmm. are not replicating. So I want to talk in a moment about uh, like what we can do. Like what 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 are the next steps for the field? What should people take from this? Before you do, I think one of the things that I think is really interesting is is people's tendency to continue to believe things that have been found that that uh, are no longer true, right? And, and I think where we could really this isn't uh, where we could really point the finger is the stuff on vaccinations, right? Very famous study comes yeah, out, absolutely. has been, since been uh, first of all never replicated, but also that original study was removed from the Lancet, the, the infamous Wakefield autism vaccination research. But yet people continue to believe it um, and believe those findings. And so, what do you? Why is it that people have such a hard time letting go? Uh, of some of these findings, do you think? Well, I think that I think this one is let's explain the issue with some more psychology, right? I think mm-hmm. part of it is the confirmation bias. I mean, mm-hmm. you hear this finding, and especially when it's this this cool, unexpected finding that you've now talked about to many people, one little blip in the whole thing mm-hmm. doesn't shake you from it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's that's part of the issue there is we just we want to believe these things just like mm-hmm. Bigfoot, right? Uh, oh, it must exist. That oh yeah, just because something was, you know, some data was fake doesn't mean the phenomena doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, I think whether it's confirmation bias or not, 
something really important to to remember is that, and I think the New York Times article that you mentioned from this this week does a great job of saying, look, just don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. There are still elements of human behavior here that these studies are tapping into that are important mm-hmm. for us to study. Um, but I think I, I think it sort of comes back to this: we love novelty and we we want to confirm this bias that we have once mm-hmm. we believe in something. So I'm curious, as an author, something that I hadn't necessarily thought of until just now. But as an author of textbooks, as, as you are, Regan, how do you handle this? I mean, this is a this probably leads to a challenge as yeah, far as absolutely. authorship and writing. Well, I think you know, and this is part of the solution is we've got to trust the authors to really be really do their homework. Mm-hmm. Um, in my health psychology book, actually, the the fourth edition is should roll off the press in the next month. Congratulations! There is, thank you. Yeah, there, there is a whole section on replication. Mm-hmm. I actually. I, in fact, I added an entire chapter on research methods to my health psych book because mm-hmm. it is so, for exactly this reason. Right. And that sort of gets to what should we do? Be more savvy about research methods. Right. That's what you should do. Whether you are a student, a layperson, a faculty member, a teacher, be more savvy about research methods. So I actually added an entire chapter on research methods and a whole section on the replication crisis with what to Very watch good. for and things like that. So that's how I deal right. with it. Uh, there's another part. What about, it's the fourth edition. What about those things I said in I was editions gonna say, one, two, and three? Have you had to toss sections uh, or Well, you know, the good thing about doing revisions is it's your opportunity to, to put the most recent stuff mm-hmm. in. And uh, there are definitely a, a few places where you need to go in and say, you know, for the longest time, or, and actually many sections of the book say, early research found this, but now we know. Right. Right. Uh, one of my favorite examples, and not a, not a health psych thing, but Piaget. Right. Mm-hmm. And we, are dip- we have human development strong in our department. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I mean, Piaget, those four categories, most intro psych people talk about it. But the reality is, and he was mostly wrong. Now, mind you, and here's where the nuance is. I mean, Piaget was wrong in that it's not that there aren't four stages. You give you give little kids those four tests, and my intro psych students love giving their nieces and nephews and kids those little tests. Mm-hmm. They will do what Piaget said they'll do, but not for why he said so. Mm-hmm. And a big thing to walk away from if people are like, huh, what do you mean, Piaget? They suddenly started listening again. Uh, <laughs> object permanence. You mm-hmm. know, the whole out of sight, out of mind. Well, now new research for the last 10 years has shown that Infants aren't necessarily that you know that dumb. Well, so as a as a, a consumer of textbooks, right? So mm-hmm. I, I have not written a textbook, but I obviously use them in classes and read them. And two things I'd say about that: one is there's nothing more frustrating than when an author makes reference to something that you now know to be false, yes. right? That is a, a big problem when you're reading a textbook and they um, and they mis, uh, misrepresent information. The other thing is that I think your approach, this idea that you draw attention to the change is important because right. if you don't, then people aren't necessarily going to recognize, they just think you left it out versus um, r- recognizing that, oh no, that information right. is no longer accurate. Well, and, and you and I, as, as you know, active teachers in the classroom, know that it's frustrating to say it depends. Right. But you know what? That's science. Mm-hmm. It depends on the evidence we have right now. Mm-hmm. You know, and we've got to be open to something not being the same with with new evidence. So I think if we can foster that in our students, just being open to new evidence, then you're much less mm-hmm. likely to be, you know, swing uh, to whatever the greatest social media says mm-hmm. is going on. Right. When we come back, Regan is going to give us some good news in a new segment we like to call What's Good. 
Chuck, can I tell you something? What? I don't really like video games. I hate video games, do, actually. Do you I video? do. You want to know something else I don't like? What? I don't really like comic books that much. As a whole? Well, you know, I'm starting to like those things a little more. But you know who's making me like those things a lot more than I used to? Who could that be? <laughs> Brian Carr. Oh, my God. He makes me like everything more, <laughs> yeah. really. Brian Carr of the podcast Serious Fun yeah. out of Phoenix Studios. Brian covers topics from video game design, comic books, superheroes, and other sorts of pop culture phenomena. Brian is a UW-Green Bay communications and information science prof whose podcast, as he describes it, is a journey into the frivolous. He talks to people who interpret and create pop culture and says, whether it's comic books, video games, or reality TV, Serious Fun examines the media that shapes and reflect our lives. He also collects action figures. He does collect action figures, and he even had us on his show, so you know that means he's got good taste. Oh, totally. High standards. Otherwise, nobody would have been there. <laughs> right. I mean, please. Yeah, or maybe it's good taste and low standards. Yeah. You can find Serious Fun and other great Phoenix Studios podcasts at uwgb.edu slash podcasts. All right, we are back. So tell me, Regan, what's good? All right, so off... Great stuff, and this is in the category of uh, what is the field doing about this, and uh, what can we as teaching psychologists or even lead people know about this? Uh, there is something called, and I alluded to this previously, so I could hang on to it for now. Uh, there's something called the Registered uh, Replication Reports, RRR. And this is the uh, APS is doing, has put this on. American and, uh, Psychological. Psych- the Association for Psychological Science. Okay. APS. And the APS. So if you go Google uh, registered replication reports, you will see a list of major studies that are being replicated. <laughs> and the way it works, it's very, very cool. You, it's, it's all part of the Open Science uh, OSF. Mm-hmm. And you go in there. And you have a, a protocol for the study that's been uh, that's been approved by the original authors of the study, and then multiple labs all across the countryside and the world sign up to replicate that study with that protocol, hmm. and then they feed in the data in, back into the study, and then they do a meta analysis on the data from these multiple labs. Very cool. Just very very cool. And uh, you go in there, and uh, the the, stud, the professor priming studies in there was the, the very first on there. If you go to the site, you'll see a number of other. Uh, if I remember correctly, the hostility priming is is being replicated or the replication attempts going on right now. But I think that's one of the neatest things is that uh, not only is this uh, coordinated effort to replicate studies, but if you remember we mentioned publication bias, many journals now are have sections for replications, hmm. right? Uh, sections for replications, and even if there are null findings, they will still publish it because it's a replication report. So Very I've been good. seeing this in more and more journals, this replication report section. Uh, there is a brand new journal for uh, research methods. Um, listeners may, know, may remember the gorilla study, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Dan Simons, one of the authors of that famous uh, gorilla study and the attention blindness, is the editor of the new APS again journal uh, in research methodology. And if you haven't looked at uh, looked at it, def run to issue one. If you teach research methods, you should definitely. At least read volume one, issue one. If not, keep keep track of that and follow that. So that's a really, really neat, exciting thing happening. Uh, I'm going to mention one more. Please do. New yeah. section. Uh, you, because you alluded to this, and you said, mm-hmm. hey, if you're teaching intro psych, what do you do? 
mm-hmm. right? Uh, listeners uh, will hear a lot about this in the next three years, but I want to start it now uh, by saying be aware that there is a general psychology initiative, GPI. It is a group of 22 dedicated, highly experienced teachers of psychology who are working on how do we make the intro psych course as uh, effective as possible. And uh, what do we do with replications and content and talking about things like that is one of the things that will be on the agenda there for how to teach. I would be remiss if I didn't tie back to the teaser. Oh, Remember yeah. the teaser? Uh, this is a really super time to talk about the Stanford Prison Study because literally four days ago, I held in my hand oh. the actual paper. Brain. No, of, well, that, no. that's not <laughs> the, the actual paper on which they recorded the minute-by-minute reactions of the Very Stanford cool. Prison Study. Very cool. I so, saw a lot of pictures of yes, this. You were someplace uh, the where Nash, there was lots the of The National stuff? Museum of Psychology. So, okay. hey, listeners, if you're I- even three hours within of driving from Akron, Ohio, go to the National Museum of Psychology. All right. Because it was just the coolest thing, especially because of this controversy to right. open up these things. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, these are the actual logs of the Stanford Prison Study. Nice. And that's why I know it was August 15th, Sunday, August 15th, 9 a.m. All right. Very cool. Very cool. So a lot of good stuff happening. Very nice. That was a perfect first time into this new segment called What's Good because we had a lot that was good, good, right? Especially after what to me is a little bit of a depressing episode. You know, like I don't love as much fun as it's been to talk to you about this. I don't love necessarily talking. Doesn't make you think what, what, what can I talk about in class? Right. You know? Yep. All right, that brings us to the end of this very special summertime episode. But before we go, I've got some people to thank. In addition to our fabulous guest today, thank you very much, Dr. Regan Garung. I need to thank our producer, Kate Farley, who's sitting right here. Thank you, Kate. And our podcast artist, Kimberly Vlees. We're going to be back in a few months with some other uh, episodes. So until then, keep being amazing.